What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Think of a VIP party. I mean, serious VIPs. $100,000 bar tab VIPs. We take a journey deep into this nighttime economy, discovering a kind of beauty brokerage that explains why rich men are always surrounded by glamorous women. And America's baseball season is underway, and as far as contagion is concerned, it's not going well so far. Players and fans of other sports desperately want to return to their pastimes, but baseball is providing some sobering lessons. First up, though. The past decade was the hottest ever globally, and 2019 was one of the three hottest years on record. That's according to this week's State of the Climate report from the American Meteorological Society. It's known as the annual physical of the climate system, and it makes for increasingly grim reading. This is the kind of emergency that scientists say is made much more likely and more damaging by climate change. Tens of thousands of people driven from... Last year, devastating wildfires ripped through Australia. The intensity of it, it's like an apocalypse. It's like something that you've never experienced before. Huge heat waves seared America, Europe and India. In the tropics, there were almost 100 cyclones. At the poles, sea ice just kept melting. Alaska's blue-white giants are dying. Now I've got to talk about the ice in Greenland because it's melting a lot Iceland faster. may have to change its name. Because but there were also huge global protests. As environmental groups such as Extinction Rebellion took to the streets to call for greater urgency in the fight against climate change. To look at this year's report, though, it seems that that fight is so far being lost. So certainly the most striking finding was that July 2019 ranks as the hottest month in the historical record. Dylan Barry writes about science for The Economist. Uh, and I can attest, being in Amsterdam and Brussels for their record-breaking temperatures, that it was hot. And, and what else does the report lay out? So there are a few other interesting findings in the report. The first is that looking in ice cores dating back hundreds of thousands, and in some cases millions of years, atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide have reached their highest levels in 800,000 years. As long as our species has been around, we have not seen these levels of CO2 in the atmosphere. A second concerning finding is that sea levels have already risen almost 10 centimetres in aggregate over the last 150-odd years. This is a record high, meaning that the levels of sea level rise have increased each year for the last eight years. Unfortunately, although 10 centimetres doesn't sound like a hell of a lot, it means that we've actually locked ourselves into over a metre of change over the next 150, 200 years. 
So that's the the picture for for 2019. What do we know so far about 2020? So interesting enough, a second report came out the day before the AMS's report, a report looking at July 2020 in the United States by the U.S. National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. Two results stuck out. We expect climatic events to become more extreme and to become more unequally distributed. We see this in the States this year with a much wetter than usual year across the country as a whole, but very unequally distributed, with the north and east experiencing a lot of rainfall, but the third of the country uh, experiencing higher levels of drought than usual. A second concerning trend is that the hurricane season this year has seemed to move quite dramatically earlier in the season than usual. The nine earliest recorded hurricanes in the season all were recorded before the month of August, which is the first time that this has happened. And and what about the the drop in emissions caused by global lockdowns? We have talked um, on the show in the past about the degree to which that would have an effect or not. So we have seen quite a substantial reduction in global emissions. In the first quarter of the year, daily emissions were about 17% below uh, the same period in 2019. But while this is helpful in the short term, it really is a drop in the ocean in the long term and unfortunately is not going to give us much breathing room on having to deal with climate change. A more significant development that may have longer term impacts on the way that we deal with climate change is the way in which the pandemic has forced countries, nation states, and blocks across the world to reconsider the role and expanse of fiscal policy. As we've seen in the United States and Europe, countries have rediscovered the importance and the utility of um, being able to pump money into the economy. And in the context in which countries previously were unwilling to put out the amounts of money needed to invest in climate infrastructure and climate-based investment, It's not impossible that this sea change in our approach to macroeconomics might actually create the room to to pump the kinds of money and the kinds of investment into dealing with climate change that will be necessary to combat it. So essentially, people will commit the money when uh, they think that the, the, the cause is urgent enough. It's just a matter of do, you know, will these same people, will these same voters reckon that the the climate situation is urgent enough? Ultimately, unfortunately, it's going to require very substantial amounts of public pressure and electoral pressure on politicians and governments to really put in the kinds of money, effort and persistent commitment that will be required to tackle climate change. Fortunately, there are some encouraging signs on that. Globally, it's looked like over the last decade that climate change has become one of the greater concerns of most people across most of the developing world. And this has accelerated in the last couple of years. So, for example, compared with a decade ago, uh, more Americans say protecting the environment and dealing with global climate change should be top priorities for the president and Congress. And 2020 was, in fact, the first time that a majority of Americans said it should be a top priority for Congress and the president. And how is that evidently global trend reflected in in, in the business world? So, in the same way that change is greatly accelerated by high levels of public consensus and electoral pressure, It also really helps to have market pressure on your side. And one of the really encouraging trends we've seen over the last year and a half, two years, has been rapid increases in competitiveness of renewable technologies, which has meant that for the first time over the last couple of years, it's actually increasingly become more cost-effective to fight climate change than to not fight climate change in terms of the energy sources that you use. An additional trend that is quite interesting, Tesla for the first time reported Profits for the first full calendar year, which also suggests that we're seeing shifts in people's demand. So not just the pressure on cost, but also on people's willingness and excitement to buy renewable, consistent technologies. 
So it's a bit of a mixed picture. The, the, the reports that you speak of give some very worrying numbers, yet at the same time, if you look to markets and recent history and what governments and some companies are doing, it's, it's sort of positive trends. I mean, where does this all balance out, to your mind? So yeah, it's a, it's a really mixed bag. I think, first and foremost, globally, we're not doing nearly enough to combat climate change. And I think that's the fundamental thrust of both of the reports that we discussed and should be of concern to all of us. There are some bright spots. Of particular interest, I think, should be the extent to which this is really an important issue for younger voters and younger generations that are increasingly becoming an important part of electoral politics and increasingly um, making their voices known through electoral pressure. We see this in the UK, for example, in the activities of Extinction Rebellion and in the States with the increasing influence of the Sunrise Movement. Ultimately, though, whatever happens, we're going to look back on 2020 as an important point in the, the development of the way in which we will have dealt with climate change, particularly because of the upcoming November election in the United States. It's unclear yet quite how big a part climate change or concerns of the environment will play in the election, but the two candidates, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, have very opposing policy positions on the way in which to deal with climate change. If we see another four years of Trump, Unfortunately, it will set back attempts to combat and mitigate climate change substantially, whereas Joe Biden, on the complete other end of the spectrum, has actually put out quite ambitious plans for tackling climate change. So ultimately, 2020 may prove an inflection point, or it may be remembered as a year where we really missed the chance to make great inroads in combating climate change. Dylan, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Here's the truth about AI. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. The VIP nightclub scene is a world of pretty models, pricey bottles, and the super rich. At elite parties, spectacular displays of wealth aren't just common, they're integral. But what's not so transparent is how this economy actually works. Inside some of these VIP clubs, the spaces are so lavish and so beautiful, and really constructed in a way that will help you lose yourself in the moment. The music is really loud. There are usually very elaborate light displays, so like pulsing lights of color, and they're usually pretty crowded. So, you know, there's a huge dance floor area. People are shoulder to shoulder, but then there are these tables and people will be standing up sometimes on the table. Ashley Mears is a sociologist at Boston University and the author of Very Important People, Status and Beauty in the Global Party Circuit. She also writes for The Economist's sister magazine, 1843. 
The women are just very beautiful. They're kind of this recognizably high status beauty, very tall, very thin. There's lots of displays of wealth, the red bottom Louboutin high heels, the Chanel handbags, expensive watches. And then there's the alcohol. People are drinking high brand champagnes like Dom Perignon or Christelle champagne. And when they make a large purchase, the purchases come out with sparklers, these fireworks that are affixed to the tops of the bottles so that everybody in the room can see who's buying what. Between 2010 and 2014, Ashley immersed herself in the world of elite nightclubs. As a former model, she was able to enter the roped-off areas that are off-limits to most people. And what she discovered was an unseen economy based on the complex brokering of beauty and status. If you walk into one of these clubs and you're not an insider, you might think that you've walked into what just happens to be a place where some of the world's most beautiful and wealthiest people congregate. What most people don't realize, though, is that this apparently spontaneous night of fun actually takes a lot of work. There's this carefully hidden, intricate economy that I followed and I found this economy's currency is young women. And in this world, they're ubiquitously referred to as girls. It turns out the models who congregate in VIP clubs aren't there by accident. Whether they fully acknowledge it or not, these young women are being managed. They're being mobilized by promoters to come out. They're getting junted in and out of nightclubs. And so I think about these young women as essentially living props that are in this carefully scripted theater that creates real financial value for men. That is the promoters that are setting up the scene, the nightclub owners that are raking in these huge bar tabs, and all of the rich people that circulate in and out of these clubs that are using this as an environment to network. In terms of how all of this actually works, the club values two types of people inside its space. It's men with money that are called clients and women with beauty, the girls. And the promoter's job is to bring both of them. So the promoters will host girls at their table over the course of the night and get paid on a nightly basis by the club in order to have those girls. And then if the promoter brings in clients, the men with money, the promoter will then get a cut or commission off of the bottle sales between 10 and 20% of what the rich men spend. The club is selling these bottles that have huge markups, you know, the price inflated like a thousand percent. And customers are only willing and actually will find pleasure in spending that kind of money if they're surrounded by really beautiful women, women that are look like fashion models, models representing the most aspirational version of femininity today. But what I found is that the spending sprees at these clubs aren't necessarily motivated by impressing the women, but rather impressing other men. It's about men peacocking and signaling to each other and even building ties with one another. What's in it for the models is also not so straightforward. Even though the models are generating all of this value for the clubs and for the men that are working for the clubs, the models themselves aren't getting paid for their efforts. They get all kinds of free things. So they get free dinners and free drinks and sometimes plane tickets and accommodations and really glamorous parts of the world, you know, for parties in Saint-Tropez or Ibiza. Many of the women, they're in more of an economically insecure position. They might be coming from poorer countries. They might not have the funds to go out on the town. But the women that I spoke to, I mean, they were also 
aware that they were in this elite world that had opportunities for them, that they might be able to further their careers in some regard if they met connections with the right people. But there's also another motivation for the young women here. Quite simply, they find it flattering and really enjoyable to feel like they are one of the elite. If you just think about where the power is and where the capital goes, the club owners are the winners. And the people who have the least amount of power here are the young women, because though they're generating all this value, they're not able to capitalize on their asset of beauty. And when I started this project, I imagined that the promoters would be the villains of a narrative. They seem like they're manipulating young women for profit. And it's true, they actually do that. But as I watched them work and got to know them, I came to see that that wasn't so straightforwardly an exploitative relationship, that some of the models found opportunities through the promoters. They found family-like connections belonging to a network of the promoters. Promoters didn't want these young women to see them as brokers or employers compensating them for labor. But the reality is that promoters do, in fact, manage young women's labor and they do profit from those young women. They recruit them, control them and discipline them, just like a manager who has to oversee their employees. After spending quite a bit of time with promoters, I also started to feel quite empathetic for them because... um, You know, their position in this VIP ecosystem is actually closer to that of the young women that they were managing than to anyone else. And they are these quintessential American dreamers. They dream about joining the club of the super rich that they're hovering around. But ultimately, I found that they're fairly excluded from that upper echelon of money and status. One promoter I got to know quite well, I call him Dre, Dre was convinced that his connections with the elite would eventually land him a big business deal. Every night out with him was a different story, right? Like it was a limousine company or a film production company or his music career, and nothing ever came of it. So like the young women, the promoters were kind of only pretending to belong to this world. If you go into some of these nightclubs, they really represent the kind of glamorous dream of success, right? Of like beauty, wealth, power. And having studied it and followed the people that put it together, I came away feeling feeling quite sad for all of the people involved because even though they're producing this dream world of success and they would seem to be living it, they're actually really far from it. Ashley Mears tells the full story of the economics of the global party circuit in the latest edition of 1843, The Economist's sister magazine. Find it at economist.com slash 1843. This week, two groups of college American football teams, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, postponed their seasons, citing the pandemic. The National Football League, or NFL, the professional game, is still scheduled to restart next month. Meanwhile, the season for Major League Baseball, allegedly America's pastime, but opinions vary, is long since underway. It started in July, and the NFL is watching closely. The big question is how sports can return without becoming breeding grounds for COVID-19. And the baseball season isn't providing a very hopeful example. After four months, baseball finally returned on July 23rd, but it's a little different. 
Rosemary Ward is our New York correspondent. There's no fans in the stadiums. The crowd's cheering or recorded sounds. And they arrive back with a 113-page protocol manual about things they're supposed to do to keep the players and their staff safe from COVID. So no spitting, no fist bumps, that sort of thing, wearing masks as much as possible. But they're still spitting. They're still fist bumping and high-fiving. And I saw one bench coach from the Dodgers actually lower his mask to cough. So uh, they have a lot to learn yet. So, so the players and the staff aren't keeping themselves as safe as they could? No, indeed not. In fact, there have been two big outbreaks in the baseball world. The Miami Marlins games were temporarily suspended after 18 players, which is more than half the roster, and some backroom staff tested positive for COVID-19. And unrelated, the St. Louis Cardinals was also hit by a COVID outbreak. So the first weekend in August, something like 20% of all the games were suspended because these two teams were unable to play. In fact, this past Sunday, the Major League Baseball further postponed games for the Cardinals because another player was hit by COVID. It's a disaster. So bad, in fact, that the baseball commissioner said if the sport doesn't get its act together, he may suspend the entire season. Now, he backtracked a little bit from that, but I think it was a wake-up call for a lot of teams. But if more outbreaks like this happen, I mean, it's kind of a, a done deal, right? The season couldn't go on anyway. I spoke to Zachary Binney, an epidemiologist who focuses on sport at Oxford College at Emory University in Atlanta about this. And he told me a third incident would clearly show that the protocols are unsustainable and not working. I think if this happens a third time, it's it's a little bit of three strikes and you're out. You're going to be really hard pressed to explain away three of them. And besides flippant, how do the players feel about the protocols and the risks and the outbreaks? Well, watching games this past weekend, clearly some players are getting the message. They're wearing masks in the dugout. Some are wearing them up at bat. But many players and about a dozen or so umpires decided it wasn't worth the risk and they opted out of the season. There's also not just the risk of games and seasons being cancelled. There's a real risk to their health and to their family's health. And we don't know enough about the disease to understand the long-term effects. One player at the Red Sox, Eduardo Rodriguez, has had pretty serious heart problems since he caught the virus before the baseball season began. But what about the idea of bubbles that have been brought into use for other sports? Is that in discussion at all for baseball? Well, it was deemed that it would be too hard to do for baseball. Players didn't want to be away from their families. And also their their rosters are much bigger than for basketball, which is using a bubble model along with the hockey league. The National Basketball Association teams are living and playing their games without fans in Disney World, Florida. So they do have virtual fans. I asked Dr. Binney if there are any suitable models around the world. He said, not really, just that the United States needs to get the virus under control. I get this question all the time. Is there a way that they could strengthen their protocols? It's just like, no, it's, it's, it's to get the virus under control. Rosemary, thanks very much for your time. Oh, thank you. Good talking to you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. See you back here on Monday.
What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.